Hey guys, Jesse here. During this episode, I forgot to mention that at 7 p.m. on January 21st, I will be joining the denizens of the unofficial official BarPod Discord server for their game night. We're going to be playing Quiplash for charity. If you want to come hang out for that, there's a link in the show notes. Again, 7 p.m. on January 21st. Thank you and hope you enjoy the episode. Katie Herzog, how's it going? Well, Jesse, I'm pretty upset right now. You upset? Yeah, I'm upset. I read on Twitter that Joe Biden is coming for my gas stove. <laughs> Joe, whoa. Joe Biden is going to yeah, fly Air Force One to Asheville, come yeah. in and be like, yeah. come on, man, give me that stove. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really upset about this. This is all over the internet. The Democrats are coming for our gas stoves. I love my gas stove. And I want to protest this. So I've had my gas stove just running for the last 24 hours and I have a terrible headache. <laughs> this is like, do you remember, uh, you probably wrote about it because you're at Grist. Do you remember rolling coal? Oh yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. This was like, uh, dudes in like Pennsylvania or whatever would somehow outfit their cars to have like plumes of black smoke coming out of the exhaust or maybe they had special chimneys for it. I don't, I don't know the details. <laughs> it's like, we're going to pollute more. Fuck you, liberals. Yeah. Um, have you been following this debate? I have not. What I have followed over the years is Democrats come for everything. They came for Christmas. Uh huh. Um, they came for Jesus in general. Yeah. I guess that's it. And now Gaston. Children. They're also coming for children. children. They, they're, they're groomers, all of them. Uh, no, I haven't followed this that closely. I know. What, is it, what does it even have to do with? Is it like regula- regulatory stuff? Yeah. So basically what happened is that a commissioner for the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is definitely something I had heard of before, he said that there is a growing body of evidence that gas stoves are bad for the climate, that should be obvious, but also bad for human health, things like asthma. And uh, he said in an interview, with Bloomberg. He said, this is a quote, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned. And of course, because America is stupid, this immediately becomes a, a you know, culture war issue. For the record, I actually don't have a gas stove. I prefer to cook on electric. I would have no problem giving up my non-existent gas stove. However, if they come from my gas fireplace, we're going to have a problem. You, this is in Asheville or Seattle? You have one of those gas fireplaces? I don't have a gas stove anywhere. And any of my many houses, none of them have gas stoves. No, your fireplace. Oh, though. my fireplace. That's at home in, in Washington. Yeah. My favorite bar has like a really cozy little gas fireplace. If Ob- if Biden tries to come and take it, I'll be like, hell no. And I will chain myself to it. What would happen is that people would just start burning wood again, which I don't think that's a better option for climate or for human health. It's kind of bad, you know, about that particular. It's pretty bad. Can I take one more stab at my Joe Biden imitation before we continue? Yeah. Come on, man. Oh, God, that's so bad. That makes your British accent look good. (laughs) Come on, man. Corn pop. You need to age it. Yeah, corn pop. Uh, you need to age it by like 70 years. Katie, what is the name of this Master of Impersonations podcast? This is Blockner Important, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, we're going to talk about America's second favorite pastime after burning gas and unnecessarily polluting. And that is a little sport called... Football. So yeah, we've got some football. What else is on the agenda, Katie? We are going to be, unfortunately, Jesse, talking about drama in the gaming world... Trigger warning, blanket trigger warning for everything. I'm in the middle of a really good Slay the Spire run, so I'll be gaming right now. I don't know what that means. Nor should you. Uh, Before that, we also have some updates, right? We do. And before that, we have a correction. And before that, oh no, that's it. Okay, so what's the correction? Okay, on the last episode, I repeatedly referred to Carlo Rossi as a box wine 
I heard from sommeliers all over the world. It is not a box wine. Somnelier, somnelier, whatever. Are you going to correct your pronunciation? Yes, this is going to be Daisy Chain Part Two. Uh, it is not a box wine. It is a jug wine. I regret the air. Um, maybe I'm I'm not sophisticated like you are. are. Are there there's dedicated jug wine companies, not just box wine companies? Yeah, Carlo Rossi's one. It's the cheap yeah. wine that like that. If you were a sophisticated wine drinker such as myself, you would have drank in college. Why don't people just do? I I guess this will will reveal the kind of person I am. I still think the Trader Joe's two buck shock Charles Shaw is like fine. Of course you do. Do you not think it? I mean, you're not a big drinker. I don't. I don't. I don't drink wine. I don't know. I, I did drink it when I was in college. I think it was fine then. When are we launching our spinoff wine <laughs> smellier podcast? Can be called the wine wine sniffed and reported. Uh, okay. <laughs> That was one thing. The other thing, um, this goes back to last week's episode about medieval stuff and Receptio, this publishing company. Go back and listen to it. It's a wild ride. I got an email. goes as follows. Hi, Jesse. In the recent episode discussing Receptio, you missed a big part of the drama. Besides Carla Rossi, the only pictures on the website that were not of stock photos were of her husband and teenage daughters who were all listed as staff. Quickly after the plagiarism and lies were unearthed, the husband, David Lamont- Lamanaka went on the offensive. He created fake profiles, which were quickly linked to him, to troll and attach, attach, attack Peter Kate on social media. Since the husband and daughter share a last name and people were able to figure out that Carla was married to David, Twitter users deduced that the girls were most likely their daughters. David and Carla decided this was doxing and accused their critics of stalking their family and targeting their children. David also made threats and homophobic remarks toward Peter Kidd. This thread has been collecting all of it. Um, so we'll include a link to that. Trace put together the notes for this, and he mentioned this in the notes. I just forgot to get to it. But there's this whole other rabbit hole of craziness uh, that you can check out if you want to. I love this because this shows that being insane on the internet is really a family value. It really is. It, it's um, perhaps, we don't know, is it transmitted sexually? Is it sort of is it terrible? Yeah. Is it DNA? Is it nature? Is it nurture? There's no one, no. Yeah, well, there should be, someone needs to write a dissertation on that. Okay, Jesse, speaking of crazy people on the internet, do you remember Rebecca Jones? Rebecca Jones saved us from, Ron, tell me if I have this right. Rebecca Jones saved us from Ron DeSantis's plot to infect elderly Floridians with coronavirus. Yeah, that's you pretty much got it. More or less. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we talked about her in episode 121. She's a Florida geographer and uh, data scientist who claimed that she was fired from her job at the Florida Department of Health for refusing to manipulate data on the state's COVID-19 dashboard, the, like the website that you could look at to see COVID stats. And the, the point of this was that the state was allegedly, according to her trying to make it look like their plan to reopen the state was safer than it actually was. She tweeted that she was asked to, quote, manually change data to drum up support for the plan to reopen. And she also tweeted that Florida's deputy secretary for health, quote, told me to delete cases and death. She later deleted these tweets. Uh, Her tweets went viral and she became something of a hashtag resistance hero. And a huge swath of the liberal media really treated her as though she was actually a hero for standing up to Ron DeSantis. And this was further cemented in December 2020 when armed law enforcement officials raided her home and took possession of her laptop. She took video of the raid and posted it online. It went viral again. There was this whole new wave of of positive press coverage because she was standing up against the DeSantis fascist. 
And uh, naturally, she started to go fund me to pay for her legal bills. And she she got over $325,000 from that GoFundMe. There was another GoFundMe I couldn't locate, but there was at least two. And then she later ran for Congress against Matt Gates and lost. Um, I'm not going to rehash the entire Rebecca Jones saga story here. Go back and listen to the episode if you are interested. But she's led a very interesting and highly dramatic life, including at one point she was fired from her teaching job at Florida State University after she allegedly had sex with a student in a classroom. Having sex with a student is fine. Having sex with a student in a classroom, I just, I think that crosses the line. I just do. I just do. Uh, and then she apparently attempted to extort him. Um, but the main thing to know about Jones is that she is a chronic liar. Almost none of the claims that she made about the Department of Health were true. She wasn't fired for refusing to manipulate data. She was fired because, among other things, she was talking to the press without clearance. At one point, she was told to stop working on the COVID dashboard. So she made herself an administrator, locked everyone else out, and sent a mass email to everyone who used the dashboard saying that her access had been revoked because she refused to manipulate data. She was fired after that. I, you know what? I like, I generally stand on the side of workers, but I think in this case, this seems like a just action to me. Uh, and in 2021, she was charged with a felony for illegally accessing the state's emergency alert messaging system, which is why her house was raided and her computer was taken by the police. Okay. So we have a little update about Rebecca Jones. Last month, in an agreement with the state, she admitted guilt and agreed to pay $20,000 to cover the cost of the investigation. She agreed to, to perform 150 hours of community service and see a mental health counselor every month. Interesting. And the deal is that if she does all of this and doesn't get into trouble for the next two years, the charges will be dropped. So I was doing a little bit of research uh, for this update, and I noticed a couple of interesting things. For one... Almost none of the national media outlets that were absolutely credulous of this con artist story bothered to report on the legal case against her. So I assume that a lot of people who heard on, for instance, NPR that she was a COVID hero who the DeSantis, the fascists from the DeSantis administration were putting, you know, their boots on her neck, they probably still believe that and aren't aware that she's actually a liar and a grifter. Yeah. The other thing I noticed is that she is back on Twitter. She was kicked off in 2021 for buying followers, but Elon, in his infinite wisdom, brought her back. And if you go to her Twitter page now, you'll see that the pinned tweet is an article called Whistleblower Rebecca Jones Wins Dismissal at a Price. This was published last month in an outlet called MyNorthwestFlorida.com. Uh, the article is by a quote-unquote investigative journalist named Rachel Davis. It's quite long. It go it like once again paints Jones as the victim of the fascist DeSantis administration. Uh, here's a quote from the piece. This is referring to the raid on Jones's house. The dramatic episode dominated American news for weeks, an outrage from the public, members of Congress, the scientific community, celebrities and technology advocates alike catapulted Jones from, from Florida cost celeb to international hero. The harrowing details sent shockwaves across the nation in political turmoil at a time when scientists were already reluctant to speak out. I found the tone of this article very strange, considering that at this point, Anyone who bothers to do more than a cursory Google search of Rebecca Jones should quickly realize that she's absolutely full of shit. So I looked a little more into this investigative reporter, Rachel Davis, and Jesse, you will be shocked to find out that there is no evidence that she exists at all beyond this one byline. <laughs> the outlet itself has published fewer than a dozen articles. 
two of which are about Rebecca Jones, and one of which is by Rebecca Jones. So I emailed the site, didn't get a response. I looked up the registration information on that, like, who is site to see who owns it. And it's registered to a company called Knock Knock Who Is Not There, which is a company that acts as a proxy for people who don't want their names to be affiliated with the website. So that seemed a little shady to me. And I tweeted about it. And uh, Charles Fane Lehman, he's of the Manhattan Institute, he had the brilliant idea to call the number from the, the My Northwest Florida Facebook page. And Jesse, you won't believe the outgoing voicemail. It begins, hi, you've reached Rebecca Jones. <laughs> no. Yeah, so I called the number and I got the same message. I actually recorded it and I was so excited to play it for you. And then a couple of days later, I super fucked up and I deleted my recording of it. And when I called the number back, the voicemail had been disabled. I am kicking myself right now. I really actually do regret the error. Oh my but I God. did call Wait. the number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just want to make sure I have this right. It's a, a news website called My Northwest Florida, which by the way, when I Google that, nothing comes up. Yeah. That barely seems to exist. Grand total, 12 published articles, two about Rebecca Jones, one by Rebecca Jones, owned by a proxy company. Mm -hmm. And when you call the number until recently, it said, hey, this is Rebecca Jones. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And this appears to be a pattern with her. A guy on Twitter named Max Nordeau, he sent me a list of about a dozen of her sock puppet accounts from Twitter and Reddit. So this is one of the posts on Reddit from her alleged sock puppet, one of her sock puppet accounts. Rebecca is a person. She's a champion of the silenced. She is a brilliant mind. She is a voice of reason. She is a strong and compassionate woman. She is a beautiful stranger. Wow. Um, I will say, whereas the case that she runs, my Northwest Florida, seems pretty bulletproof, how do we know these are sock puppet accounts? No, that's a good point. Uh, I asked the guy, Max, how he, how he compiled this list of her sock puppet accounts. He said that it was obvious. I'm inclined to believe him that this is her because, honestly... Who the, el- who the hell else would say this? <laughs> her, her direct friends and family. Right. These are the sort of things that your mom writes in your Christmas card. Yeah. I, I, you know, Katie, I think you're being unfair. This reminds me of when there was that glowing uh, profile of me written by the unknown up-and-coming investigative journalist, Sessie Jingle. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jingle completely exonerated me on charges of transphobia. And for some reason, people didn't take that story seriously. I think that's unfair. I think that was also in MyNorthwestFlorida.com, wasn't it? <laughs> this was uh, MyCentralBrownstoneBrooklyn.org. <laughs> All right. So that is our Rebecca Jones update. Honestly, there'll probably be more. Oh, yeah. She's someone who um, lends herself to many, to frequent updates. Yeah, she's like a virus. All right, Katie, let's move on to the world of games we have video games which we'll get to we also have um i think it's pronounced sports are you familiar with sports a little bit yes i am a lesbian (laughs) huge sports fan okay so i want to spend a little bit of time dissecting an essay that has already gotten a lot of attention right on up to fox news but i think it's worth us discussing because it really highlights a particular type of what i find to be noxious progressive discourse on race that is frankly embarrassing for liberal institutions because it sort of treats members of minority groups like helpless pawns, like it robs them of any sort of like agency or individuality. And I think most people just I don't know think that. we're using minority anymore, Jesse. We're using marginalized. Marginalized BIPOCs is what I mean. Right, right. Uh, so what spawned this article was the uh, Damar Hamlin incident. Katie, you're a big sports guy. Can you explain who Damar Hamlin is and exactly what happened to him? Uh, You were asking the right person, Jesse. Uh, Damar Hamlin, he is a member of the uh, 
Buffalo. Buffalo. Bu- buffaloes? Yeah. The buffalo. Yeah, let's see buffaloes. how much you can get through without checking anything. Buffalo okay. What is, yep. uh, first of all, what is a bill? It's like a, I mean, their, their logo is like a bison, right? Okay. The buffalo bison. And he had, I think he had a, he had a, he got hit and he had like a heart attack or a stroke or a torn Achilles. It was terrible. Anyway, he got hurt on, on the football field. I'm realizing now I've, 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 very familiar with the Buffalo Bills because they're sort of a rival of my team. I never know what a bill is. They were, I mean, the Buffalo, anyway. You're just a bill, just a Buffalo bill. You go through Congress on Capitol Hill. I think that's that's what it is. <sighs> Something like that. So basically, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, a Buffalo Bills player named Damar Hamlin, uh, he's a safety defensive player. He made a tackle during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. So he makes a tackle, gets up off the ground, and immediately collapses. He goes into cardiac arrest. He's taken to the hospital. It really looked like he was going to die because, like, usually if someone collapses suddenly and has a heart attack, that's often what happens. Uh, the game was suspended, which almost never happens in pro sports, like, even after a severe injury. Somehow, he subsequently regained consciousness, and by the time the Bills played their next game, he was well enough to tweet his support uh, from his hospital bed. So that was good. It was a good good outcome in the end. Uh, so obviously, this highlights football can be a dangerous sport. But we should say this is like, this is highly unusual. Like concussions are pretty common as are quote unquote lighter blows to the head. You don't really see players have on-field heart attacks. It's, it's crazy unusual. It's why it got so much national attention. Um, and the broader conversation about concussions and so-called CTE, uh, is complicated. So-called? You say, you sound that like you're a CTE truther. <laughs> There's no such thing. <laughs> um, the science writer Daniel Angber has done some good work, like throwing cold water on some of the more overheated claims. Um, I definitely think blows to the head are bad. The NFL has been really irresponsible about concussions, but I admire Angber for like writing nuanced stuff on this. We'll include a link to an, uh, one of his Slate articles on the subject. Okay, so the article in question ran in Scientific American. Uh, it's by a woman who, despite the fact that she's writing about an American sport. She has the gall to be named Tracy Canada. That's her last name, Canada. Insane. She is a sociocultural anthropologist at Duke whose work, quote, focuses on the lived experiences of black football players, end quote. The headline, Katie, Damar Hamlin's collapse highlights the violence black men experience in football. Mm -hmm. Without knowing much about football, what's your reaction to that headline? It's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What? Why is it stupid? Violent football is a violent game. Everybody who plays football experiences violence. And it it and the headline makes it sound as though black men in particular. It's like the I'm gonna get this wrong, but there's some joke that's like asteroid hits hits world women most affected. It's something like it that's what it feels like to me. This you're talking about something that is sort of universal in the sport of football. Maybe black men are overrepresented in the sport of football, but the headline itself makes it seem as though this is particular to black men. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to focus too much on the headline because I don't – well, I mean, I don't know who wrote it. It might not have been Tracy Canada, but it, it is that format. It's like if I pointed to a black teenager who got murdered and said the murder of this young man highlights the violence black men experience growing up, that, that would be true and accurate because black people – uh, face violence at a much higher rate than white people. But to swap out that formulation for pro football, where playing pro football is a choice you make and also a high-paying, very prestigious job, and, and yes, the NFL is something like 70% black, that's a pretty bonkers uh, way to go with this, right? Yeah, it's a little bonkers. Because I'm I'm a, a pervert for nuance, remember, t-shirts available, barpod.org. <laughs> um, 
Before I continue, I should say that people sometimes do overstate like how rich NFL players get. Uh, this is from a 2016 article. The average NFL career lasts 3.3 years, according to the NFL Players Association. <laughs> yeah, but 78% of players go broke within three years of retirement and 15.7% oh, uh, file for bankruptcy within 12 years of leading the of leaving the league, according to a paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research. You can sort of understand how this would happen because if you from like a lower income background and college was devoted to playing football and you don't have a lot of other skills and it's like the and most, you have head injuries and you have head injuries and it's the most physically taxing sports league imaginable you know you you're in there three years making mid six figures that's not going to last you the rest of your life or anything you might you might not have a lot of other options so being an nfl player is not a path to like guaranteed riches it's it's a very rough and competitive sport and a lot of people wash out of the league quickly um and you know i think the Players Association NFL are taking some steps to help players with like financial literacy and so on. Um, even taking all that into account, the fact of the matter is that millions of young men in the U.S., millions of them would kill for a chance to play on an NFL team. Like even if it destroys your body, even if the salary structure is like kind of winner take all, like playing NFL football or even D1 college football is a dream for many people. And and that fact is completely absent from this article because it's very important that it just do the usual whites are oppressors, blacks are oppressed uh, format. And, and I feel like there's a lot of subjects where people just like try to paste that worldview in places where it doesn't necessarily belong. I feel like this has come up before for us, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So Tracy Canada starts off by saying that what's striking about the play that fell DeMar Hamlin is how ordinary football play it was. She writes, uh, this ordinary violence has always riddled the sport and it affects all players, but black players are disproportionately affected. While black men are severely underrepresented in positions of power across football organizations, such as coaching and management, they are overrepresented on the gridiron. Non-white players account for 70% of the NFL. Nearly half of all division one college football players are black. So this is the challenge faced by pundits and academics who view the world as consisting of just oppressed groups and oppressing groups. The fact that 70% of the NFL is non-white means that non-white people are dominating a profession that millions of white kids would love to play. Like to those millions of white kids, those stats about the financial precarity of the league don't matter. The fact is you would get to make hundreds of thousands of dollars playing a sport. And I can't emphasize enough how much of a dream this is for so many kids and how brutal the funnel is. Because like according to one estimate, there's 1.1 million high school football players in the U.S. That gets culled down to 74,000 who compete at the college level every year. And then of those 74,000, uh, just like 0.3% or so get drafted. So, I mean, am I missing something here? Or like, isn't it just inherently weird to say the fact that black people are overrepresented in this sport means it's racist when – White people would play like if they could, if they were good enough. Right. I mean, the whole premise is sort of silly. Although I'm, I'm really glad that you that you told me these statistics because I'm going to take these. I have three nephews, and three out of my three nephews all dream of being in the NFL. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take these stats to them, um, and then I'm also gonna remember remind them that they're white and that it's just not gonna happen for them. <laughs> these are white white yeah. children of academics. Yeah. I don't I don't like their odds. Yeah, not huge either. Not gonna happen. Are there them. are their parents letting them play tackle football? My sisters, I believe, gonna let her kid play tackle football. My brother, who's married to a neurologist, no fucking way. Yeah. I feel like if I have kids, I'm, I'm just not. It's just very easy to just be like, nope, you're not going to do that. There's lots of yeah. other sports you can play that aren't as dangerous. Golf. You can golf. Much more golf. likely to make it happen for you. Why, you, why don't you just play full contact tackle golf? Like, yeah. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. So the, those numbers I just gave you are like fuzzy for a few different reasons. But like, 
a ton of people want to play in the NFL desperately. They will train for years and put off other plans and absolutely wreck their bodies just for a shot at riding the bench for like the worst team in the league. It's that competitive. So to treat the overrepresentation of black people as a sign of racism is like completely bizarre and backwards. And I think anyone who follows the sport at all sort of knows this. All right. So it gets a little bit worse. Uh, here's another quote. On these playing fields, one that sociologist Billy Hawkins would argue are never theoretically far from plantation fields, <laughs> financial stakeholders value black bodies for their productive potential and physical uh. prowess. I would say we don't even need to respond to this, but somehow this like this isn't even the first time someone's made this comparison, right? It is not. I believe Colin Kaepernick also made the same observation. Yeah, I guess it was technically Ava uh, Duvernay. I can't remember Duvernay. Duvernay. Um, so there is a brief clip in her Netflix series about Colin Kaepernick that made this comparison explicitly. Let me just read from some news, NBC news coverage of it. Uh, it's like, it's uh, whatever. <laughs> As the first episode opens, a flurry of football players portrayed by black actors are seen charging across the field in front of white coaches. What they don't want you to understand is what's being established as a power dynamic. Kaepernick dressed all in black says, before they put you on the field, teams poke, prod, and examine you, searching for any defect that might affect your performance, he continues. No boundary respect. No dignity left intact. Do they cut the their balls? <laughs> the scene transitions to an open market in America's slavery era, where the players, shirtless and shackled, are then sold before one of the slave owners shakes hands with a football coach, merging past with present. I saw a clip of this on YouTube, and I just, I, I just couldn't believe it it's insane to compare being poked and prodded as a prospective professional football player to being poked and prodded as a slave right do, do we even need to point out how offensive an analogy this is it, it is very offensive it's also just bad because one of those is a choice and the other is not i will admit i do think that there is something about the optics of if you look at a let's say i don't know what's a pretty white city green bay is green bay pretty white Okay, let's take a white city like that. There is something about the optics of if you look at a stadium filled with hundreds of thousands of white people looking down on a field of black men beating the shit out of each other, I can see the optics of that are not great. But still, they chose to be there. They're well paid. And they're in a position that, as you said, millions of kids and adults around this country are envious of, would love to be down there getting tackled and whatever else they do on a football field. I, I'm not even sure I agree with the optics problem because the NFL used to be segregated. It used to be they were the crowds were cheering right, for white right. people bashing their brains out. And um, I get what you're saying in like a superficial way, the optics are bad. But you know what? After the game, if one of those black players shows up in a bar in Green Bay, he's like the toast of the bar and everyone would flock to buy him right. drinks and get his autograph. The fact is like they're, they're seen as idols in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean there's no totally. issues here. It's not dangerous, but it's just, it, there's no comparison between this and genuine, uh, racial oppression. No. And I, like I made the mistake recently of asking my racist neighbor if he watches the NBA. Racists do not want to actually see black men playing sports. <laughs> I will never make that mistake again. Uh, what did he say? I like I cannot repeat it. Not only can I not repeat it because I would be canceled, I wouldn't repeat it because it was so fucking offensive. To put it mildly, he stopped watching the NBA when it stopped looking like all Larry Birds. Dude, they um, 
you know, Bill Russell, who died recently, is one of the best basketball players of all time. He played for the Celtics. And when he moved to the Boston suburbs, they just made his life a nightmare. They broke into his house. They left like human feces in him and his wife's bed. Um, that first Jesus, gener- the Boston, wait. His own wait, did he play for Boston? Yeah, but he did, but he was in a white suburb and they Boston, Jesus. I mean, obviously, it is still pretty racist, but back was then, it was Newton? It was not, it was not Newton, <laughs> I don't believe. Um, no, the, the first generation of black players who desegregated these leaves are just absolute American heroes. And in Bill Russell's case, it went, it went beyond other form of activism, but again. It is 2023. Things are a little different. And there's this inability to discuss racism, which still exists, while acknowledging that in 2023, like, there's some progress. And football is an example of progress uh, in terms of race relations because it used to be only white people played it. Now, black people absolutely, they dominate it. And and they have these prestigious positions that, I mean, I can only repeat this so many times – any one of these players who is destroying their body on the field, there are thousands of white kids who would like to be there destroying their bodies instead. Yeah, Jesse, Shane Gillis has a has a bit about this, about how football actually cures racism. <laughs> what does he say? Let's just play that right here. Like as big as racism is in America, football. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Look, they go, there's a Disney movie, Remember the Titans. Dedicated to what I just told you. The whole point of that. Dude, that was one high school football season. Remember the Titans was like, it was eight weeks. You know, that whole town went from like centuries of like, don't let them in our school. To just like, oh shit, the high school team's 4-0. Those are my brothers. <laughs> All right. I'll get off the topic. <laughs> the point, look, the point I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is if you want to get rights in America, you just got to put together a good football team. You know what I mean? Like if the transgenders, if the transgenders got together and put together just a fucking hard nose, run it down your throat ball club. <laughs> if the transgenders just three yards in a cloud of dust of transgenders. If the trans if the trans community could just somehow upset Alabama, <laughs> everybody down there tomorrow would be like, "Those are some tough bitches, actually." <laughs> Dude, I can't stop thinking about if the the transgender all star team beat Alabama, just what Twitter would be like the next day. Yeah, and you know it would be the best women's football team in history. <laughs> okay, this uh, this next bit's actually about college players. It it drove me crazy too. Um, the most recent and exaggerated example, uh, example she means of the exploitation of college players, occurred in fall 2020 during the first season of play during the COVID-19 pandemic. Beginning in March 2020, there were almost no students on campus. Classes shifted to virtual formats and social distancing became common practice. However, teams and conferences decided football play would continue. Players in all five major Division One conferences risked their health with an unpredictable and sometimes deadly virus to play a high-contact sport in almost empty stadiums to satisfy their universities, as well as television fans and the broadcasters who capitalize off their viewership. If those players hadn't taken the field, athletic departments could have lost at least $4.1 billion in revenue. So the NCAA is like a shitty disgrace of an institution. It has been for a long time. There's definitely inequities in the college game, although there's recently been some progress in like paying players, although it's mostly the stars who get the most money. But that description by Canada about the coronavirus debate like leaves out the voices of the actual football players. And all you have to do 
is click around at contemporaneous coverage and you a see that a lot of them wanted to play. They love football. They wanted to play football. She's again, if you can't see the world as anything but oppressed and oppressor, the only model that makes sense to Tracy Canada is the evil white administrators who run everything forced these helpless black football players to play. A lot of them wanted to play. Not all of them. Some of them had concerns about safety, but a lot of them wanted to play. Uh, the other thing is the NCAA let kids opt out. There there might be some complexities here I'm missing, but this is from WIBW, a news radio station, Topeka, Kansas. All student athletes must be allowed to opt out of participation due to concerns about contracting COVID-19. If a college athlete chooses to opt out, that individual's athletic scholarship commitment must be on by the college or university. So what they're saying is that if you got a free ride to your school to play football, even if you don't play football, you still get college paid for. That that doesn't really line up with the idea that these kids are being horribly oppressed, does it? Oh, no. That sounds like a pretty good deal. And again, I don't trust the NCAA. There could be some shitty elements of this I'm missing, but none of this is in the piece. Uh, I'm just going to read one more paragraph, and then I'll stop complaining about this. In a way that is reminiscent of black feminist scholar Hortense Spiller's theorization of flesh, these situations demonstrate how organizations, administrators, and fans dismiss each player's personhood, strip them of their humanity, and reduce them to mere bodies. Um, what's kind of funny is like that's sort of what Tracy Canada is doing here. Right. She's not acknowledging that players have agency and they like football and they might be willing to sacrifice for it. She's sort of treating them as just like mere bodies. Anyway, continuing. No football athlete deserves this treatment. They should not be expected to play after enduring, experiencing, and witnessing bodily traumas. Further, to dismiss the almost certain breaking down of their bodies as just part of the game is a process of objectification and commodification that prioritizes the player over the person in a way that black feminist scholar Bell Hooks <laughs> says calls to mind, quote, the history of slavery and the plantation economy, end quote. <laughs> The anti-blackness of the system is inescapable. Again, it's just wildly offensive and inappropriate to compare any of this to plantation slavery. I don't understand how Scientific American publishes comparison multiple times in the same article. Scientific American does seem more these days like a queer studies journal than a actual scientific journal. Yeah, Scientific American seems to have gone in a weird direction lately. I guess my favorite example was this headline from 2021. Why the term Jedi is problematic for describing programs that promote justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Subheadline. They're meant to be heroes within the Star Wars universe, but the Jedi are inappropriate symbols for justice work. Did Noah Berlatsky write that? <laughs> it should have been. He, in a sense, he did, Katie. In a sense, he did. <laughs> so, so part of the problem is they run these just nonsense columns. And then, like as you would expect on sort of hot button substantive issues like youth gender medicine, to pick the one I'm most familiar with, they just there's very little critical, careful science to be found. The magazine runs a lot of propaganda at this point. And, and a lot of people blame Laura Helmuth, the editor-in-chief. She took on that role in March of 2020, like, basically right as coronavirus was kicking off and shortly before the racial reckoning. I don't know if it's fair to blame her. I, I mean, obviously, she has a lot of power to shape what runs in the magazine. But there's probably other factors, too. Like, I feel like whenever we look into this, uh, magazines tend to go crazy because of younger staffers rather than leadership. So there's right. there's some question here. Right. Um, I will say I was disappointed to see how she responded to the controversy after the Tracy Canada article. Like, there was a lot of heat. Tony Dungy, who's a former player, coach, and analyst, um, who, like a lot of NFL players, actually, has a bit of a conservative bent. He tweeted in response to um, Scientific American tweeting this out. 
quote, as a black man and former NFL player, I can say this article is absolutely ridiculous, which I wouldn't, I'm guessing a lot of players feel the same way. Uh, Fox News picked it up, as did other right-wing media outlets. So after Helmuth tweeted out the article, including a ridiculous line from it, she got dogpiled. She responds by saying, and the replies to any tweet about systemic racism prove the existence of systemic racism. Great logic. I feel like when it comes to a lot of like bad progressive writing about race, this is sort of used as a mechanism for avoiding accountability. Of course, if you write a dumb article about race or even a not dumb article about race, right-wingers are often going to freak out about it. And of course, some of the responses will be over the top or even abusive, but that doesn't mean it's not a bad article. Like it's crazy this was published and it's such a cartoonish understanding of, of race and power. Did Tracy Canada, did she uh, say that she was being harassed and lock her account? That's a good question. Twitter, Tracy Canada. Yeah, I mean, and again, I I don't doubt that she was harassed, but her tweets are protected. Yeah. As I mean, she probably was harassed, but also it was a fucking stupid article. Yeah, she probably was harassed. It's a bad article and she was harassed. <laughs> like, it, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't want her to be harassed. No one should say racist things to Tracy Canada, but it was also a bad article. It can't be the case that as soon as like, we can't let, the internet's worst shitty people decide what we're allowed to critique. We're not, we're not saying harass Tracy Canada. We're saying don't run shitty articles. Right. We're not saying put her in a uniform and make her go play football. <laughs> in fact, if you harass Tracy Canada, all that's going to accomplish is then people be like, oh, she's being harassed. Help. When we should focus on Scientific America sucking a little bit less. Right. So that's my take on Tracy Canada and Scientific American. All right. Well, thank you for that. Jesse, uh, are there any Jews in the NFL? I feel like at one point there was maybe a half Jew or a halfling, as we call them. Uh, There's probably plenty of Jewish owners, though. Yes, but that's anti-Semitic of you say. <laughs> I'm just quoting Kanye. I put a, at the Boston Live show, I put my signed Drew Bledsoe jersey on you so that you could become an official Bostonian. It was a big moment. That's right. Was that thing signed? It was signed. You don't know who Drew Bledsoe is, though, so it doesn't matter. No, I don't. Yeah, it meant nothing to me. Katie, let's do housekeeping. Yes, we are a podcast. You can reach us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Reddit at Jesse, throw me a bone here. Blockedandreported.reddit.com. We also have a newly rebirthed merch store. The merch store has come back to life. It's like literally, it, there's still afterbirth everywhere. The doctors haven't gone home yet. It was just reborn. We got an email from someone today saying that we should make a t-shirt that says pervert for nuance. Well, Ryan, that t-shirt already exists and is available. Wait, seriously? Yeah. Ryan, Ryan, dude. Pay attention. Get what, I didn't read that email. I saw the t-shirts. That's come on, Ryan. Step up your game, yeah. man. We already have the t-shirt, Ryan. Really offensive. We have that t-shirt. You should buy several of them as yeah. pendants. And most importantly, if you go to blockedandreported.org for just five dollars a month, you can become a premium subscriber, a primo, one of our cousins, and get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. Best deal in media. The one we the one we just published yesterday, today's Thursday, or recording Thursday, was about I gave an update on my war against the pigeons, or what a clever reader dubbed World War Coup. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we talked about Andrew Tate a little bit, and then you talked about the Reading Wars, which is this fascinating thing I knew very little about, but apparently at a certain point, America just decided, eh, why teach kids to read? What's the point? Exactly. Yes, and there was also a little aside about Jack Monroe, Poverty Larper. Oh, Jack Monroe was the other great thing, yeah. So this was a really good episode, so sign up at blotterreporter.org if you want to listen to that. Anything else, Jesse? Did we give our email address already? We did, yes. 
Cool. I don't remember anything. All right. So you're going to tell me a story about another kind of game that isn't sports. The opposite of sports. I am. Jesse, have you ever heard of Battletech? I think so. It's like some kind of nerd shit, right? Yeah, definitely nerd shit. It started out as a tabletop board game in the 1980s about giant warring robots set in the 32nd century. It was later expanded into video games, role-playing games, novels, miniatures, comic books, and animated series, etc. It's a pretty big franchise. It's mostly enjoyed by dorky dudes such as yourself. And our story today involves a longtime writer for the franchise named Blaine Lee Pardo. Pardo, he's a 60-something military historian. He also writes science fiction and true crime. And he's been writing Battletech novels and source books, which are basically like backstories about this fictional universe since the inception of the, franchi- of the franchise in the 1980s. He did a ton of the early writing, and he really constructed a lot of this universe himself. And he did this in his spare time, and he had regular day jobs, including at Ernst & Young, until really pretty recently. I did see one rumor online that he quit his day job in 2016 rather than be forced to undergo diversity training, but he told me uh, via email that this actually isn't true. He quit his day job in 2019 when his financial planner told him that he could afford to, and he did indeed do several diversity trainings at Ernst & Young. Uh, Okay, so, yeah. So after he quit his day job, he started getting more involved with the online Battletech community. He started posting more on forums and on his own blog. And a lot of it was really popular with the fandom. Like, he would post early materials. The fans loved that. But he also started to reveal more and more about his own personal politics. He's openly conservative. He's a Trump supporter. And this clashed with the younger, more diverse online fandom that was getting involved in Battletech and its associated properties. And this was especially true during and after the summer of 2020. Uh, Jesse, do you remember 2020? This is when a, a bunch of like Instagram users discovered that slavery used to exist and they freaked out about it. And then they cured it by posting black squares. Black squares, yeah. So some of what was going on in 2020 did enter his storylines. Like, he's a military historian, and if you recall, there were a lot of statues being torn down, particularly Confederate statues. And Pardo, he opposed this, and occasionally he would include sort of similar allegories about tearing down monuments in his Battletech works. But for the most part, he kept his politics, his politics and his Battletech writing separate. This wasn't true with his other writing. In 2021, he published a book called Blue Dawn, the most chilling what-if in history, the progressive overthrow of the United States. <laughs> Wait, before, before you continue, um, I like that it has a title and a subtitle and then a sub-subtitle. I and like that it calls itself the most chilling what-if in history. <laughs> Usually you would try to get a blurb, someone else to say that. He right. just, he just put Anyway, what's, what's his book about? It's about Antifa and other leftists taking over the U.S. <laughs> okay, wait. If Antifa took over the U.S., they would dis- disband it. It would devolve into vicious inviting. No, they wouldn't have time to disband it. They, they would. Right. They're so dysfunctional. It would last. It would not last. They would get ousted by like five decently well organized, moderately competent Capitol police officers. That would be it. Yeah, I mean, the first uh, several years of Congress would just be pronoun recitations. It's a. It's a very far fetched idea. And he does tweet, he tweets about Antifa and Hunter Biden, and he's pro-Trump. And he said there's a war on white men, and he likes Chris Rufo Post. And, and it's mostly your pretty standard conservative anti-woke rhetoric with some insults thrown in. Like, there's this thing that he's repeated a few times on Twitter. This is in regards to, like, your standard non-binary trans blue-haired feminist types. He responds, you could throw her in a pond and skim ugly for a week. Uh, he also said that about Joy Behar, who I personally have always thought was sexy as hell, especially in her big glasses. But this starts to become increasingly problematic in the fandom. 
And there's one fan in particular who started calling him out on it, especially after the publication of Blue Dawn. Her name is Faith McCloskey, and Faith was described by one Redditor as a highly visible big-name fan. She was active in various forums, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, and a Discord server where Battletech progressives would hang out and, among other things, compile detailed notes about problematic people in the community. (laughs) As you do, as you do. I mean, who am I to judge other people of not having like enough to fill their days with? But I mean, that sounds fun to why, me. They're not busy. No one has like jobs or li- they spend their times on a ba- a Discord server for progressive BattleTech fans making enemies lists, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, okay. you, you spend all day on Twitter. It's not that different. I guess so. And this was this in particular was really important to Faith because she herself. She's a marginalized identity. And so she feared that conservatives in the Battletech fandom and, and, and like higher ups like, like Pardo were making it a hostile space for her and other marginalized folks. And yes, I did say that with an X. And she was really open about her identity. I'm going to read you a bit from a blog post where Faith introduces herself. To start off, my name is Faith. It's an ironic name since I myself am an atheist. But that's an aside. By way of basic introductions, I'm a 37-year-old woman who lives in the rural and historical town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I was born and raised in Burlington, Massachusetts, and lived there for a large portion of my life. Burlington is a suburb of Boston, and it's about as white-privileged, middle-class America as you can get. Have you been there, Jesse? Do you know Burlington? Uh, Burlington, Mass? Yeah, they're uh, well-known for their mall at one point. That's all I got. It sounds like a destination. Okay, so... Faith goes on to say that she got a degree in nursing in Tennessee, and four years in the South was more than enough, and she moved back north for a job and got more involved in the fandom. She started writing fanfic, and in 2015, she met a, quote, absolutely amazing woman who changed my life for the better in so many ways. For those who don't know Sophie, she is an insanely amazing girl. She worked her way through school by serving in the Army and earned her degree to become a clinical lab tech. This is all the more remarkable because so often she had to hide her identity as a lesbian through much of the time. The writing isn't great. But Faith says that she and Sophie have so much in common. They're both science geeks. They're passionate about activism and politics and gaming and sci-fi. But they have enough differences to keep it interesting. Like Sophie doesn't leave the house without rocking a corset, boots, and full makeup, whereas Faith is more low-key. I guess she's butcher. Sophie's a cat person. Faith is a dog person, etc. And they're so happy and in love. And, and Faith didn't know that life could be this amazing before Sophie. And Sophie really helped her come to terms with her own identity, you know, her own sexual identity. And so what you get here is a real portrait of this of this woman's life, right? I can see it. Can you see it? Yeah, the corset thing creeps me out because, like, who doesn't go out without a corset and makeup? But I guess there's uh, some weirdos out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm wearing one right now and I'm just podcasting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's gay or she's not not straight, right? And Battletech is really important to her and her and her her gender journey or her sex her sexuality journey. And in another blog post, she writes that she discovered Battletech as an adolescent. She says, I was a just-blossoming feminist and a fledgling fledgling skeptic while still trying very much to have fun as a teen. I would hang out at the mall with my friends and laugh at silly things and pay attention to boys. I still very much had not even begun to start to come to grips with my sexuality at that point. And then I would come home and plop into bed to read a scathing feminist critique on this or that piece of literature. She says that a lot of the sci-fi and anime that she was into was obviously sexist, but the Battletech universe was different. She says, there was nothing inherently sexist about the world. In fact, it seemed for all intents and purposes that the fictional world itself was just about as perfectly egalitarian as I could hope for. 
she wrote that in December 2020 on her blog. The next year, things are going well for her. She announces that she's had a story accepted in Shrapnel, which is a Battletech magazine that is published by Catalyst, which is the publisher of the Battletech properties. In April of 2021, she writes that she's going to be a mom. She and Sophie are expecting twins, and she's just she feels so lucky to have found her place in life and in the fandom. And meanwhile, between blog posts and fanfic and her nursing job and preparing to be a mom, she's still active in Battletech fandom and online forums, and she's increasingly appalled by Pardo's politics. In particular, that book he wrote about Antifa and progressives taking over the country and tearing down all the monuments and, and ushering this new dystopia where everybody is forced to give up their gas stoves and dye their hair purple. <laughs> so what we have is like, it's the classic SJW versus Trumpy boomer battle, right? And it gets more and more hostile. Faith says some weird and kind of violent shit about Pardo. Like at one point she writes to another author, I want to fucking shoot him in the fucking crotch for this shit. Oh my God. Yeah, great. Okay. Another point, she says, I'm sorry, I want him to die in a fire. I have sometimes thought that about you, Jesse, but you shouldn't say it out loud. You yeah. shouldn't type it either. Definitely not. She says that his book, which she hasn't actually read, she says it's a quote, condemnation of everything I believe in. It's a condemnation of my family and my livelihood. Of course, this is because she's a lesbian and is about to have twins with her partner. She also complains about Pardo to Catalyst, and he knows of all about this, and he's pissed off too, and so he starts to fight back. In July 2021, he writes a blog post called The Truth About Faith McCloskey. Here's a quote from that. What follows is a story about lies, deceit, catfishing, defamation of character, extreme leftist politics, threats against my life, and outright character assassination. It is a story about cancel culture, censorship, and standing up for your rights. And he goes on to say that Faith has spent the last two years defaming him, threatening him, inciting his fans against him, accusing him of believing things that he doesn't believe, which I think refers to various isms and bigotries and phobias. He says she repeatedly contacted Catalyst to try to get his contracts canceled and has generally been terrorizing him for two years. He says that he, he keeps loaded guns at his house now in case she shows up, and all of this has caused him and his wife great anxiety, and so he filed a restraining order against her, and it was granted. And Jesse, he also writes this. Faith McCloskey does not exist. Faith isn't a lesbian female planning to adopt children in November. She's not a nurse. She didn't attend college in Tennessee. Her background on the net is a web of lies aimed at deceiving people. She isn't a she. In reality, this is an account of a middle-aged man who I will simply refer to as Jay going forward. Whoa. Wait, is it me? Yes, it is you. <laughs> uh, he says that Jay lives at his grandfather's house in Pennsylvania and worked at a big box store before being banned by his former employer, and that he pled guilty to, to both issuing terroristic threats and harassment in a Pennsylvania court in 2020. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he's basically claiming that Faith was has catfished the entire Battletech fandom and that this 30-something lesbian social justice warrior expecting twins is actually a middle-aged loser man. So, of course, Faith responds to this on her own blog and denies it. Her post is called, Blaine Pardo is a F star 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 liar. What does that stand for? F star? Okay. She also says she never threatened him and that his book, which, again, she hasn't actually read, is absolutely disgusting. It is akin to a modern version of the Turner Diaries, a white supremacist classic from decades past. Okay, wait. <laughs> just, I haven't read the Turner Diaries, but it's like, it's literally about... Classic. I think the it, it it's huge in the white supremacist imagination. I believe the last scene or the last parts, there's like Day of the Rope, which is legendary to like actual neo-Nazis where like 
you hang the liberals and the racial minorities, whatever the quirks of this guy's politics, I'm going to guess this is a batshit insane analogy and that he did not write a book about murdering minorities. Well, Jesse, I have yet to read it, but I would recommend that the unofficial Barpod book club maybe pick it up uh, for, for your next yeah next month and uh, get back to us on this. There we go. So Faith, she also in this post, she calls out Catalyst and she calls out Battletech fans who stuck by Pardo. And she writes that he's eroding our democracy and our way of life. Uh, she also wrote another blog, po- blog post on a different blog that addresses the claims that she's actually a middle-aged man. And this part is just bizarre, so I'm going to read it to you. He brings the identity of someone, Jay, into the picture and gets most of the facts wrong. I have some insight into Jay and his position, as well as his permission to set things straight here at this time. Jay is, in fact, a person with thoughts and feelings just like you or I. But Mr. B- I wonder if this is the same person who was writing on uh, Rebecca Jones's uh, Reddit. <laughs> yeah. But Mr. Pardo gets most of those details wrong. I do not know if this is the result of shoddy work on the part of the police, who he claims to be working with, or private investigators that he may have hired, or of slipshod research on his own part. So let's get the facts straight. Jay does, in fact, have a criminal record for terroristic threats in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. What is not shown in this is that the plea agreement into which Jay entered was for a COVID-related mental health episode where Jay, having lost his job, made statements about suicidal ideation in a performative manner in order to show the people he felt responsible for the plight of his depth of despair. Jay has sought and received treatment and is currently a happy and productive member of society. Mr. Pardo also claims that Jay lives in his grandfather's house. Both of Jay's grandfathers are deceased many years ago, one lying buried in the United Kingdom and the other buried on the Easter Shore of Maryland, nowhere near where Jay resides. So she doesn't even bother. I mean, maybe elsewhere. Did she ever be like, no, I'm not Jay? Because she's like referred to him in this weird way where it's clearly someone she knows a lot about. Does she say I'm not Jay? Not in that blog post, but in the comments, someone says, so you are a dude or was that just a lie by BLP? That's part of. And Faith responds with this. Jay is a dude. Faith is Faith. Well, that clears it up. Yeah. So it does seem actually pretty clear at this point that Faith is, in fact, a middle-aged man, whether or not he's living in his grandfather's house. But a couple of weeks later, Pardo announces that he has been fired by Catalyst. He posts an article about this on the right-wing website American Greatness. It's called, My Publisher Canceled Me in Favor of an Activist Who Threatened My Life. And he says that this goes back to January 2021, when two people complained about him to Catalyst and asked that his books be, be pulled because they contain, quote, hidden Confederate messages. He says that at first Catalyst said that the, the publisher there said that his politics don't matter as, le- as long as they're not in the Battletech books and that they conducted an investigation and they found that there was no hidden political messages in his books. He also says they offered one of the protesters an opportunity to publish a short story in the hopes of appeasing him. That's a reference to the short story that Faith published in Shrapnel. And he says, I warned the company that the man was an online stalker who had been harassing me for nearly two years. Later, law enforcement would discover that this man was using a false online persona, that of a self-proclaimed lesbian nurse who was adopting two children. Catalyst Game Labs ignored my warnings. And in fact, they did not just ignore his warnings. He claims that they cut ties with him entirely, even after he offered to publish under a pseudonym. And he writes, as a result, my many fans will no longer see my work in Battletech simply because the publisher feared online backlash. So this gets a lot of attention within the fandom and Catalyst ended up publishing his statement. They denied that this had anything to do with Faith slash J, but they don't deny that it's because of his politics. The statement reads in part, 
Catalyst Game Labs recently suspended publishing new works by longtime Battletech author Blanley Pardo, primarily due to Mr. Pardo's online activities, which do not align with Catalyst's publishing vision. This had nothing to do with Mr. Pardo's quality of work or ongoing sales or, as reported elsewhere, his personal feuds with other fans of the Battletech brand. So they're denying that it's because of faith, but this might not be entirely accurate because Pardo, on his blog, he published a transcript of his call. It's a rough transcript, but a transcript of his call with the Catalyst president. His name is Lauren Coleman. And unless he's lying about the transcript, Coleman straight up said the problem is that it's this feud that you have with faith. Damn. Yeah. And the response to all of this with the fandom was varied. He had some support, you know, primarily among conservative or anti-woke types, probably also among older types, I would assume. But a lot of people were like, this isn't cancel culture. It's accountability culture. He's just being held to account for his shitty politics. And this feud with face is, is just a distraction. It's not about that. It's about his shitty politics. But it doesn't really seem like Catalyst gave a shit about his personal politics until Faith came along. And so I think this is a good example of how one unhinged internet loser activist can upend someone's career if people with actual power aren't willing to just ignore the whole thing or stand up for their own writer. So all of this took place between 2020 and 2021. But last month, Faith slash Jay posted an update on his blog called Faith No More. (laughs) It begins. I know. I like it. There's so many opportunities with that name. Pardo has another blog blog called Faithless. Uh, It begins. The time to tell the complete truth has come. I can't go on keeping up the mask any longer. This is going to be painful for people, but I owe you all the truth. Faith McCloskey does not exist. It is a persona that I have used for over 10 years in order to gain acceptance. I'm speaking to you now as Jay. Wow, so Pardo was right. He was totally right. And Jay says that when people thought that he was a woman or sometimes a trans woman, it just felt natural to him, but he can't continue to live the lie. Then he announces that his new name is Ace Cowler. <laughs> he writes, Faith is no more. I am Ace now. Ace, <laughs> Ace is still passionate about Battletech, the community, writing, social justice, and everything that you came to know me as. But I can do this now authentically without the facade. Under my new, under my new of, fake name. Yeah. <laughs> Ace, right, yeah. Unless his parents are millennials, there is no fucking way his name is actually Ace. Well, he doesn't. it sounds like he doesn't even claim this is real. He's like, this is no. my new pseudonym. Yeah. So Pardo, of course, he responds to the big reveal on his blog, and he's basically like, yeah, dude, no shit. This is what I said in the first place, and you fuckers didn't believe me, and Catalyst can go fuck themselves. The Blue Dawn series is doing well, and my new book, Confederacy of Fear, will be released later this month. And one last note about this. So Trace spoke to a number of people within the fandom who were who were observing or involved in this. And he spoke to a trans lesbian couple. So I think a like a woman and a trans woman. And they also feuded with Jay slash Ace slash Faith because he, nay she, perceived them as less progressive than he was. Oh nay God. she. It's confusing. This is how Trace put it. He was doing precisely what he accused conservative creators of, creating a hostile environment for marginalized fandom members. And the couple ended up leaving a Discord because of him. I did reach out to Faith slash Ace slash J to ask why he lied about his identity. And he said this via email. The reasons why I lied about my identity are complex. I created an alternate persona online because I deal with severe anxiety. I created the faith persona to allow me to express myself freely without the fear of rejection or judgment. I wanted to be a member of the community but I felt severe anxiety regarding being judged or accepted. By creating a false persona, I insulated myself from the idea of rejection. He goes on to say, Many aspects of the persona were incredibly real and authentic. 
It also allowed me to explore gender identity issues that I currently struggle with. Shocking. Oh, God. Fuck off. Like, fuck off. Some people do struggle with gender identity issues. You're just a fucking sociopathic liar, bully. He also says, I could be another gender online and have that accepted. It meant a lot to me. I also asked him why he went after Blaine Pardo, and he said this. Initially, I noticed Lost Cause Confederate sympathies in his works, and so I gauged with him online, asking for his side of the story. His response was to attack me, calling me a shitty fanfic writer and demean me. From this point on, we were enemies. So... Basically, he was offended because he says that Pardo called him a shitty fanfic writer. Um, As for the Lost Cause Confederate Sympathies thing, he's talking about historical revisionism that sort of favors the narrative of the South. Pardo denies that he has Lost Cause Confederate Sympathies, and it really does not seem as though Ace has actually read any of his non-Battletech works, including the Blue Dawn book that started all this. The fact that his next book is called Confederacy of Fear may make that denial seem a little shady, But he he talks about this on his blog. He says, I don't want people to associate the American cause highlighted in the book with that of the Confederate States of America. The two couldn't be farther apart. The title, Confederacy of Fear, refers to the progressive new Americans that topple the government. New Americans. New Americans. New Americans, yes. And he, I emailed with Pardo. I, I told him what, uh, what Jay slash face slash A said about him calling his fanfic shitty. And he denied that too. He says, I've never read anything he has written other than his myriad of messages that he has bombarded me with. I don't know if his fanfiction is shitty or not, nor did I read the short stu- story he had published. Much like claiming to be trans or a lesbian, this is another attempt at him trying to paint himself as a victim. I never saw him as an enemy. I only paid attention to him after he expressed a desire to inflict violence on me. Um, he also denies that he has radical views. He says, basically, I'm a Trump supporter. I don't think that January 6th was an insurrection. And these are views that tens of millions of Americans have, which I think is true. And I'm inclined to agree with him. I do think he might have been overstating the threats to his life. Like, I think that Faith Jay was probably in a basement somewhere typing this shit out. I don't think that there was really much of a chance that they were going to show up at his house or he or she or whatever they go by. But I can also see why he would be at, like, just the end of his rope when it comes to this kind of behavior. Last thing about this, uh, after I emailed Faith slash J slash H for comment, he asked me to meet him for a chat on Discord or somewhere else more private. I'm not sure why Discord or wherever he wanted to meet was more private than email, but I declined because he does seem like the type of person to get weirdly obsessed with people and cross boundaries, and I've already got one gamer to deal with, and that's you. Uh, Pardo, I'll shoot you in the crotch. <laughs> and Pardo also told me that that face slash J slash H has a history of going after reporters, bloggers, and YouTubers that like Pardo's work. So I'm going to try to keep my distance. I will not be meeting him slash her slash them in a Discord chat. This is like I, I've encountered this personality type before, and they're just incredibly abusive, and they use identity bullshit to shield themselves from any criticism and – you know, if we lived in a time and place where racism was considered cool, they would they'd be racist and they'd use that to abuse people. There's no actual principle there. These are just like deeply abusive personalities. Yeah. I mean he's probably got a very fucking unhappy life. Yeah, but he's still absolute a miserable piece of shit. Like just you, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who have unhappy lives who don't inflict this much shit on other people. Just seems like a horror, terrible person. Yeah, and he got Pardo essentially fired from this franchise that he'd been that he really helped create and that he'd been writing for for like almost forty years. Yeah, that's really it's a really crazy story, right? And once again, it shows that publishers or editors in chief or whoever need to just like not be so fucking terrified of crazy online people. 
I also like, I'm sorry, but I look, I know some people need anonymity and I'm in favor of that, but this idea that we need to automatically trust what people say about who they are when we have no evidence that's the case and when they use that as a weapon against people, we have so many examples of people just lying. So I, I don't know. I'm going to take any claim like that with a grain of salt unless we know it's true. I will not believe that there is a female in the Battletech community until I see a DNA <laughs> test. Right. <laughs> Anything else on this, Katie? That's it. This has been Blocked Reported. Thank you, as always, to Tracing Woodgrains and to Lex for production help. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, it's possible that maybe not everything should be compared directly to slavery or genocide. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if Rebecca Jones claims that the sky is blue, that means it's probably pink. <laughs> <laughs>